Hi everyone. Um, I know it's been a very long time since we uh, had a recording with Leswa, but I'm really excited to have our next guest, um, Howie. Howie Delahoun is a Foreign Service Officer with the United States Department of State as an American diplomat. Howie's passion lies in the intersection of international diplomacy and democratic institution building in developing countries. As a public servant, she believes in the power of local narratives and in the practice of empathy to shape diplomatic work. In her space and time, in her spare time, Howie loves to sing, play the guitar, and serve her local church. Howie, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, I understand this is a difficult and busy time for you, so thank you for taking the time from your busy schedule to be here. And so glad that we get to have you on the Zoom call for Leswa. Take it away, Howie. Yeah, thank you so much, Lili, for this opportunity. Um, it's great that you are providing such a platform for women to share their stories and to be encouraged uh, from these different stories. So thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here with you. Of course. Thank you for being on the show. Um, just to start things off, Howie, um, tell us where you're from, where you were born, your, what your childhood was like. Awesome. So I was born in um, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Um, I was born in Gulelli, and I lived there until I was about nine or ten years old. Um, let's see, what I remember from my childhood is really my house is always full of people. Mm -hmm. um, both my parents have lots of siblings, one of ten and one of twelve on both sides. So it was a huge family, and a lot of my dad's siblings used to live with us. And so um, I just remember the house always being full of people, full of life, full of laughter. Um, and I think those were like sort of the early seeds that I really started to know how much I just love being around people and having conversations with people. And my uncle always used to tell me like when he would go pick me up from school, he would always find me in like little coffee shops um, in the corners just with older adults listening to politics or you know, I don't know what I was saying at that age, um, what I was talking with them about, but just had a passion, you know, to yeah. conversate with people. And so yeah. that's what I remember growing up. <laughs> I can, uh, I can relate a lot to that. I, I was an only child growing up, but I grew up, I was also um, born in Addis and it's just, I was always around so many people in our house. We always had people visiting us from, you know, different parts of Addis and my grandfather and my grandma um, took a lot of people in and we always had people sleeping over and we always had sleepovers and it was very difficult for me when I came to the States because I, that was, that culture was gone um, and I was so, right. being around so many people, I think, to your point, that's where I developed a love for being around other people all the time. <laughs> so as you can imagine, this pandemic has been a little crazy and <laughs> difficult. So I could definitely. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's it's proving really difficult for a lot of Ethiopians around. And I mean, even like you know, even despite having all the virtual accessibility, it's just it's not the same, you know. Yeah. Um, I think to your point about being Habesha and Ethiopian is. There's so many, our culture um, experiences depend on interactions, whether that's drinking coffee together or eating together, you know, just the art of eating in a mess hall, it's like, it's a communal experience. And I think Absolutely. People, our culture is derived from that. So it just, it's hard to, to not be without it. I yeah. agree, completely agree. <laughs> 
Um, and just to continue on your childhood, um, you mentioned your uncle and him taking you to coffee shops. Who were your early inspirations and your role models growing up? Wow, yeah, um, so many to to name, but um, I would have to I would have to say my my parents were one of my early inspirations. I think seeing them open up their doors to people all around me um, and just establishing a culture of constantly giving, even with the little they have, um, really instilled in me just that desire to do that for others as well. Um, and I also had a particular aunt growing up, I remember, who was so strong in her Christian faith. Um, and that was also instilled in me at a very young age as well. You know, she would always take me to church with her, always wake me up when she was about to pray. And she kind of mentored me in the faith at an early age. Mm-hmm. And um, since coming to the States, I feel like I've had just been so blessed to have different teachers in my life through school that honestly just saw so much potential in me that I didn't really see myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those teachers just cultivated the talents and the potential that, I ha- that I've had. Um, and so it's just... It's a lot to name, but people do play such a pivotal role in shaping who you are mm-hmm. and in cultivating your, your potential. And the right types of people are so important in your life, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, so. I, I, I completely agree. I think mentorship and guidance is so critical, Absolutely. especially um, when you come to a different place that's so foreign to you. Absolutely. To kind of, our parents are sort of our foundation, our are the pillars of our life but I think that influence in career and faith is so important um, absolutely it's, and it's nice it's nice to have somebody you can talk to about a lot of things absolutely absolutely yeah and go ahead go ahead <laughs> I, I was just gonna ask you in um, speaking of foreign um, <laughs> um, and how, how, is, how did you get, you know, interested in foreign services? How early in your career did you become interested in foreign services? Yeah, so um, I actually heard about the foreign service quite, quite late. I, I heard about it kind of after I graduated undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, but it so happened that somebody who um, was a Wrangell Fellow um, happened to come to my graduation party and was just like, hey, you know, I'm a Wrangell Fellow. And I'm currently actually doing an internship in Ethiopia. And so he started to get me more interested in the foreign service. Um, but I didn't really know much about it when I was even in high school or an undergrad. Um, but sort of the components of what a foreign service officer does were always something that I was interested in. Um, but early on, I had some aspirations maybe to go into academia or um, to go into NGO work. Before that, I had some experiences working for the American Red Cross as a refugee coordinator and things of that nature. So I had some kind of, you know, experiences that were ready to be tailored into the foreign service career, but I didn't really know much about it mm-hmm. um, until I met somebody who was a foreign service officer. Mm-hmm. And then you yeah. started doing the career as something that you wanted to do. Like, exactly. Short-term vision or this is something that you thought was like your life call calling? Well, um, you know, just like with any opportunity, you sort of apply. And, you know, my motto is always like, whatever opportunities sound good, I just apply if the door opens and I'm like, maybe God is making a way for me to go that way. 
Um, And so, you know, I had applied for the Ringo, really honestly not thinking that I would get it because there were people who are groomed from such a young age to be foreign service officers or who've had State Department experiences. I didn't have any of that when I had applied. Um, But when I got it, it was like, oh my goodness, okay, so there are, you know, certain skill skill sets that they were looking for that I had been able to develop. And, and a lot of what foreign service officers do is really a lot of the things that I'm passionate about. You know, we were talking about your childhood and being having a passion for conversations, for listening to other people, having um, this sense of cultural adaptability, wanting to take initiative when you see challenges. All these things are sort of what they call the dimensions of uh, foreign service officers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got it, it was like, okay, I think I'm, I'm able to do this. I think this is something that I can see as my way of, you know, being a servant, serving the American people in a way that's also not seen, right? Like a lot of the work that we do, people don't really know what we do, yeah. but I love working in the background. I love like doing things that are unseen, but making a contribution. Yeah. Um, and so I found myself saying, okay, I think I can, I can see myself doing this for the long run. Right. And, and you talked about th- these skill sets like, as dimensions, and I assume you need to be an excellent communicator um, along with other things. On top of that, you know, cultural adaptability, like you said, what, what do you think are some core characteristics or skill sets you need to have to become an effective foreign service officer? <laughs> um, so... I think the big thing really, I mean, cultural adaptability, um, as I said, is is honestly one of the biggest sort of dimensions of foreign service officer because you're traveling right. all the time. You know, uh, most foreign service officers in their early career are moving every two years to a whole new country, and you have to learn the language of this country. You have to learn the local customs and cultures of this country. So, if you're not cultural culturally adaptable um, and open to learning. It's quite challenging to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but initiative and leadership is also um, another dimension that's important because you are there to bring your ideas and you are there not to just look at the challenges and say, you know, okay, somebody else should do that. But to say, you know, I have ideas, I have innovative ideas that I can bring to improve our foreign policy to be able to um, strengthen our relationship with other nations and other countries. And you have to be able to bring forth those ideas as well. Um, And I would say being objective as well. They really highlight that being able to be objective in your analysis, being able to weigh um, different options. You know, I I reflect about that now, especially in this sort of culture of like the the cancel culture, you know, if people don't agree with you, it's like, it's very hard. But this is so dangerous because I think, being able to be open about different ideas that people bring, despite also the convictions that you have is so critical Mm -hmm. because that shows that you are also adaptable to learning, to listening, um, which is really important, I think, not only in our work, but in our daily lives. (laughs) I 100% agree with you. I, I was actually talking to somebody about this, about especially in this climate, just having a healthy dialogue with somebody, you might not completely agree with that person, but allowing them to express their point of view. Absolutely. So, you know, it's critical uh, and it's important for us to have these dialogues so we can push the culture forward, so we can push our politics forward, despite mm-hmm. having um, differences in some of the things that, we, you know, we take stances on. And, you exactly. know, I did experience that 
you know, this weekend I was having a healthy dialogue on uh, defunding the police. And, you know, we, we had a conversation and people get, people are really passionate about these kind of topics and um, Mm -hmm. people take it personally. But I think to your point, it, it, it pushes you, it challenges you to take and understand what that person's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're mm-hmm. dismissive and like do the, con- the cancel culture, um, I don't know. I don't know if, this, if that's something that's healthy for us in the future. I completely agree with you. I think more and more we have to defend diversity of ideas. Mm-hmm. We need diversity of, of, of ideas. This country was built on that. And this is why, you know, many people also come to this country and other countries, you know, they struggle to, people struggle to express themselves. You know, there's only one dominant political party or one dominant idea. And this is really, you know, the freedom that we have here, the freedom that was hard earned Mm. is the freedom to express our ideas freely. Yeah. And we can't lose that, you know, and this is what makes our, country what it is today right right um and so yeah and this is exactly kind of the values that we also stand for when we're abroad um and this is the area that i'm so passionate in working in especially in african countries where you have such a huge young you know it's a young continent we have people who are under the age of 35 that are up and rising in these african countries and we have to be able to cultivate the different ideas that these young people have mm. um, in order to bring new ideas to governance, you know, to policy making. Um, and so whatever ideas that we're promoting abroad has to also be parallel to what is happening in our country today domestically. Right. Um, so. Nice. Yeah. of traveling, that was great. Thank you. Um, any favorites, like any places that you love going? I know you're to be traveling to Brazil soon for a two-year assignment um but what are your favorites so you things you like to do when you're abroad um so I so when I was in grad school I um as a fellow I served in Thailand nice. uh, for a short period of time for about three three to four months yeah. and um quite honestly it was uh very challenging it was very challenging um, and I went to Thailand because I was um, very much interested in this concept of the developmental state, which um, reading back on um, Melissa's writing from Ethiopia, the developmental state was really the type of state institution that he imagined Ethiopia to be. Mm. And so I had done my honors thesis on that when I was an undergrad and really wanted to understand what this sort of looking to Asia looked like for a lot of African countries like Rwanda and Ethiopia as well. So it was very, very interesting. You know, Thailand is one of the longest living monarchy that we have today. Um, And one of the projects I was looking at is really um, interviewing and and doing political reporting on a young and upcoming um, young politicians in the country who are wanting to shape the direction of the country. Um, And so being able to interview them, to just hear their heart was was one of the most amazing experiences. But I had to say that the challenge was finding a local community. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of times, like traveling is very glamorized when you're thinking about living in a country and finding your local allies or your local community it can be challenging. But I was able to find um, a local church there 
and that's actually founded by African missionaries. Mm-hmm. So it had like a lot of, you know, Africans and ties, um, a lot of like mixed babies too, which I've never seen. <laughs> but that was, that was really awesome. And through that too, I got to meet um, Pakistani refugees as well. The church did a lot of outreach too. At that time, there was a lot of the Rohingya refugee crisis happening in South, Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And so the church was doing a lot of outreach and I got to meet a lot of um, the refugees there. And through those connections, um, we were able to link some of the work that the embassy was doing to help these refugees. Um, and so it was kind of cool how my work and sort of my, you know, my faith almost inter- intersected. Yeah. And that's something that I am um, interested to explore more. I think for me, finding a local church is really the best way I feel like I can really plug in into, into the community. Mm. And, and how has, I think that's interesting, the intersectionality of faith and in general, like corporate America and living yeah. here, how we can, you know, really dissect that and how we can be grounded in our faith. How has right. it for you? Um, has it like, it seems like it's been really instrumental in your progress and mm. especially when you're traveling and how are you able to maintain that? Um, yeah, this is something that I'm always, um, just wrestling with and I have big just fascination you know I even my work has sort of changed the way that I have read I don't know Bible stories since young you know now I think of people in the Bible like Daniel or Esther who at their time were diplomats essentially you know Um, and so I've been able to say you know ask myself what is it that how how did they really do their job well while also maintaining their sense of who they are and their faith and i think understanding you know values like being a person of integrity um and being really just excellent in what they do and honestly excellence is what led them to be promoted as well and having a discipline of prayer as well um, in their lives and so for me those are the ways that i feel like i've been able to engage my faith in a different way and saying what are the values that I can learn from these biblical characters who did really what I'm doing now, you know? Um, and how is it that I can learn, I could apply those values in my work today. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited. I think um, understanding forms of worship also in different countries is something I have passion for. I have a passion for music and being able to go to these different countries and to see how they, how they worship, you know? That has also been quite um, quite a journey for me, yeah. and has helped me develop my my love for the arts as well. Wow, that's beautiful. I think you know, faith obviously is universal. Everybody has a different version of yes, what their faith is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to be of Habasha descent and how we're so ingrained in um, you know the Orthodox belief and how um, you know certain things should be done. Um, and it's just interesting to kind of understand people like different culture, religion when we're traveling and appreciate that and learn from it. Um, and I think personally, I've been able to sort of, do, not sort of, but I've actually been able to do that. I obviously, I grew up, not obviously, but I grew up in the Christian Orthodox um, church. Mm-hmm. I was a choir mm-hmm. singer um, and I used to be up at 6am and go to service with my mom. But as I've, you know, gone older and I went through college and just really understand what faith meant to me. I've been able to mm. explore 
um, going to a Baptist church, um, which mm. is completely different from our, the way that I grew up. But I've been able to find a, a different piece in that journey um, mm. than you know, what I had growing up in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And now mm. living in New York, I go to a Christian church. You know, doesn't mm. specifically have to be Orthodox or Baptist, but it's a Christian church. And mm. I found a different piece in, in different understanding of like, of, of God and faith and, and, um, my birth and my journey and getting to know God better. So I think it's just interesting awesome. to kind of explore that. Absolutely. That it's, it's so much more dynamic to do it in different cultures. Um, Absolutely. Another added layer of what faith is. Absolutely. No, it's, it's so fascinating to, you know, I think not to, to, to divert into, you know, faith conversations in Ethiopia, but I think, even the way, you know, even the way that, for example, like Christianity came to um, Ethiopia, it's really interesting because how experiences in the North were very different from, let's say, experiences in the South. Mm. Um, and so my family's from the South. And when I moved to Minnesota, I was very much immersed into the Oromo Christian community. Mm. And um, I think a lot of... Um, culture and a lot of history influences faith as well. Um, and so, you know, I didn't really know what the difference was, you know, largely to, I grew up in Addis. And so what was predominantly what I was seeing was kind of the Christian Orthodox faith. Um, but I've been back to Ethiopia since then too. And the three to four times that I've traveled to the South, you see sort of the ways in which um, missionaries uh, came to that region um, actually Christianity came to the Oromo people through an Oromo slave who was actually sold into Europe and came back. And so there's this mix of history. And when you listen to a lot of Oromo Christian music, um, it has a lot of, it's endued with a lot of um, sort of the Israelite kind of consciousness of journey of, uh, you know, slavery and freedom and things of that nature. And so Ethiopia itself has this contested history, mm. you know, um, and it's so important, um, you know, I, I try to be cognizant of that even as I'm traveling and doing work because a lot of times the history that we often understand might not be the history that's actually how people think of history when we're traveling, you know? Mm -hmm. What's on the history books might not be the way that other people tell those histories, right? Yeah. And so I think being cognizant of that is something that, that is so important. Um, and local narratives really shape they shape foreign policy, you know, um, and the little study that I've done, you know, the, the Oromos have this um, um, Geda culture, they call it Geda democracy, before really the onset of the Ethiopian state, the South had this governance structure called Geda, and it, it's, it's actually one of the um, oldest forms of indigenous democratic governance, mm. and the way that peace building is thought through this cultural paradigm is that peace actually has seven forms the word naga is what is used in you know if the land is not producing food they say you know the land is not at peace with itself for example mm -hmm. so how we think about um like also language you know informs the way we think about peace but when we do foreign policy really understanding that we're not always the one teaching that we have to be teachable and that local narratives despite not getting the the history books that they deserve they do have the power to shape the way we do peace building in other countries mm -hmm. and the way we do diplom diplomacy in other countries. And so 
these are the ways sort of our local narratives or my local my local narrative also inter interacts with with my work when I'm abroad. And speaking of Ethiopia, um, yeah. we have our fair share of political divisiveness and you know narratives that can be misconstrued, especially when you're living abroad. Um, yeah. But someone who works in you know foreign diplomacy, how how are you able to sort of uh, mimic the things that you're doing here uh, to potentially you know doing it in Ethiopia or any other African country? Do you think about that? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Similarly, you know, even now, you know, we're seeing in, in, in the U.S. how symbols are being contested, right? Yeah. Symbols of people that we've held up to be founders of, our, of the nation have had these conflicting stories with the ways in which, you know, African-Americans were treated and, and the like. And so Ethiopia is a similar way. History mm -hmm. is being contested. Mm -hmm. um, and it is okay to have those platforms for these histories to be problematized, you know? Because um, history is very political. Um, as someone who has who's had a little bit of study on state building, you know, it's phenomenal how states come into being, how institutions come into being, um, who was at the table, who was not at the table when these histories were being written. Um, and all these understandings are, are really critical when we interact with other countries because you know, history is always with us, grievances are always with us, trauma is always with us you know um and so when we sit there when i sit across my counterpart and when i'm doing negotiations i have to understand that that person brings with it a set of history um a set of narratives that maybe i'm not aware of yeah um and so it makes me cognizant to be empathetically listening mm. you know mm. um and really you know seeking to 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 understand rather than being understood being more open to listening rather than talking. These are all the things that I think understanding Ethiopian history has helped me do in my career. Right. Yeah. More than ever, it's so critical to be empathetic now. Um, I agree. During what's happening, not just here, but even, you know, in our home country. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's what's missing from these negotiation conversations where we're thinking about the livelihood of, people that have been um you know historically marginalized and have not been heard and i think it's important to revisit those conversations to, to revisit those um shortcomings that people have experienced um absolutely and i think that sometimes you, i mean you know more than i do that that empathy can really be something that we can um show more of kindness extensions of grace um i think we're so focused on political agenda, movement, economic uh, stability. But, you know, at the foundation of it, I think people need to be a little bit more kind to a lot more people. Um, Absolutely. To kind of know that they, they do care about, you know, their, the people that they're leading. Um, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, it's so critical to, to have empathy. I agree. I completely agree with you. And it sounds like elementary, right? Like, be kind, yeah. be empathetic. But it's like... <laughs> I think when you get into power, somehow, you know, you, I don't know, you know, there's just, there comes a time, I feel like, in just in the process of politics, and I think a lot of it is just greed and love of money. Yeah. All of that really contribute to thwart really the, the foundation of, of why, you know, initially why people assume power is really to better the lives of other people. It's about 
ser- servanthood, you know. Um, but I think we always, you know, we always have to go back to our foundation, asking ourselves, why is it, why, why do I do what I do? What is my motivation, you know? And that is always, um, honestly, my heart posture when I'm praying is, you know, Lord, like, check my motives, check my heart, because it is really out of the heart that really, what, what flows out of us really is kind of, it comes from what is in us and what is in us comes from what we're feeding ourselves, right? Mm. Um, and so, yeah, those things are important. They sound elementary, but they're just so critical to what we do. Mm. And we need it. We need it so much in this country as we're moving forward, as we're healing. Uh, we just need to be open to listen to one another more. <laughs> yes. Listening yeah. is so key. And yeah, understanding and understanding why we have differences in our opinions and perspectives and how we Absolutely. can come together to push the same agenda Mm-hmm. in any shapes and forms so I agree um I, I know when I first met you we actually met on a zoom call um, yeah. um you mentioned that you know you were a diplomat I was super geeked out um and I to your point earlier not a lot of people know the direction of how to become a foreign service officer I think it's to your, you said it's something that we never really get to see in the forefront as uh, other political people that hold offices Absolutely. It's equally important, if not extremely important to be, you know, to the job that you have, because you guys set the foundations for a lot of the things that happens in, in public. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think are some of the misconceptions about your job? What do people think that you actually do? Um, and things that are, you know, that are not true. <laughs> um, so honestly, yeah, I mean, it's, and mostly I always get people say like, I actually have no idea what diplomats do. Not, they don't even, they're not even at the level of having misconceptions because really it's not they don't a know. career that, yeah, yeah. They really don't know what it is because it's never like talked about. Yeah. Um, and also, I also just didn't, didn't know about it. I just thought, you know, I just knew it was like a big deal. I'm like, oh, you're a diplomat. That sounds awesome. And I presume you travel. I presume you represent the country. Uh, abroad but besides that I didn't know much Um, and so there's so many you know similar to I guess what other career can I compare it with I'm not sure but foreign service officers do a plan there are so many things you know from negotiating peace treaties to helping um, an American abroad who lost their passport or an American abroad who died and um, you know a lot of diplomats are actually responsible to calling back into to the states and informing about the whereabouts of this American citizen abroad. Mm. Um, and so there's different, they call it um, uh, tracks, career tracks. Um, and so the one that um, I'm in is the political officer track. Um, and so my work is really about analyzing host country politics, um, doing reporting, actually doing some of the uh, negotiations and um, agreements that that we're working on and that's my track um, but I have um, other friends who are in the public diplomacy or in the consular and the consular is really the one that does a lot of the American citizens work you know if Americans are in danger um, abroad if Americans need any type of assistance consular officers are the ones that are at the forefront um, and consulars are also consular officers are also the ones who are interviewing people who are coming into 
the U.S. as well from different countries. Nice. Um, and so I remember, you know, when I came into this role, you know, I remember my own interview going into the American embassy in Ethiopia when I was coming here, you know. Um, and now being on the other side of it all, um, you know, I am so I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve, but I'm also like, my goodness, this is such a, what a full round of an experience. <laughs> I actually didn't even know. So American foreign service officers are the ones who conduct the visa. Exactly. 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 Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I didn't know that either. I didn't know that either until, until I entered into, into the job. And so actually all foreign service officers begin with that position. Um, they, they begin with uh, the interview process and to do that also all foreign service officers are trained in the language of the country. Mm. So that's one of the things I think people, people don't know, especially, uh, you know, for people who are listening to this and saying, I, I love learning languages like the foreign service op- foreign services for you really, because you spend the vast majority of your time learning a language. I spent about now seven months learning Portuguese to be able to do my job. Mm. Um, and you do all your interfaces, you're doing all your meetings in the language of that, of that country. Mm. Um, and so, and there are people who've learned five, six, seven languages wow. because they're going to different. Yeah. And at, <laughs> so, yeah. How often, so now after you've gone to Brazil, like do you get another um, position in a different country? How does that work? Exactly. So you travel, um, at the entry level, you're traveling every two years mm. to a different country. And then when you're, you know, growing more in your career, maybe you'll spend three years or four years, maybe, but not, not longer than that. But each time you go to a different country, you do have the opportunity to come back to D.C. and to take um, a full term language training, either for, you know, can range from six months to two years, one year, for example, for Korean, you spend a year learning it in DC and another year in in South Korea because the language is just that difficult. You know, you need you need a lot of training. Yeah. Um, so you do spend a lot of the vast majority of your time in training, but it all pays off for, for the work that you're going to do. I imagine that's yeah. that's that's a lot of traveling to you know to do in a very short amount of time. Yeah, I that to be super difficult. Um, <laughs> And so how do you even like start building communities of allies like, that roots? Um, you know, it's not like you're going from state to state. You're literally going from country to country, different language, different food, different faith. Yeah. Um, how, how will you adjust to that? Or have you thought about it? Um, you know, things that you're considering doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the embassy community, you know, we do have, um, uh, you know, they call it the community liaison office, which really tries to um, build a home community for embassy workers. And so part of this job is that, you know, your colleagues could really become kind of like family, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, outside of that is really up to you to make the best of the country that you're in um, and to find local, you know, some people just um, start volunteering at a local uh, community events, and then they meet people through that. Some people, as I was saying, find their faith communities as well. Um, and so you just really have to be out there, you know, and then just knowing that you really just have two years is also, you know, I've learned 
just to say, I'm going to hold my relationships, not with a tight fist, but with an open hand, you know, knowing that it's hard to deepen these relationships because, you know, you're traveling yeah. every two years, but to say, you know, I'm open to making the best out of these two years and then a new chapter opens, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's, I'm, I'm really glad that they are able to support you guys in that way because I can imagine being difficult to to be somewhere for two years and you know basically pack up your bags um and move on to a different place absolutely and it's gotten it's gotten you know a lot better i think they've you know um one of my professors when i was doing grad school was um ambassador linda thomas greenfield and she um was our ambassador to liberia and actually um she served in rwanda at the time of the genocide as well and you know she was saying at that time you know it's challenging I mean even the way the world was and sort of in the conflict zones that she was she was um, serving in sometimes you can't even leave the embassy compound you know Um, and Mm -hmm. so but now we do have options to go to places that are open right you could leave and be you know Brazil is one of those countries where you can go out and actually walk around whereas like if you're serving in for example, South Sudan, that might not be the case or in other places where you might not feel safe. Right. Um, and so there are opportunities, but that those are also the challenges I think a lot of people need to be cognizant of. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when you're serving in conflict zones. Yeah. It can be very challenging. Very, very challenging. That's what but I was it, Yeah. I can, yeah. Like some of the, for people that are considering, you know, going into this, like, some of the challenges you were just talking about is yeah absolutely so absolutely (laughs) yes 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 um yeah I mean you know I I went into this sort of I I thought about it but I felt like it's it's amazing really I think this country for me has given me a lot of a lot of opportunity and I'm really grateful I know uh, despite our imperfections, I really start with a place of gratitude. Um, and I think I want to play a part in in um, making the, the, the world a safer place and a more secure and prosperous place for our own citizens, you know. And so I went into a saying, I, I had an opening to, if they were to give me a, a conflict zone to say, I'm willing to serve, you know, I'm willing to play just a small part that I can play in um, in contributing to America's mission abroad, which is actually serving the American people, you know? Yeah. Um, but it, it's hard, you know, you, you, you weigh those, those, um, those challenges, you know, where you might not be able to, for example, if somebody had a family, they, they can't bring their family into a conflict zone area, for example. Yeah. Um, and so Ambassador Greenfield, you know, shared about some of the times that she's spent apart right from her family and some of those challenges of especially when you're women and thinking okay how do I if I was to have a family how does it work like how do I plan you know Mm. having um having a family and things of that nature so it's a lot of there's challenges to it too um but overall I think yeah I think being saying you know um, I'm just willing to to serve and this is something that I'm passionate about. Again, you just have to be really passionate about the work that you're doing. Right. Yeah. And so I think those things are, 
or what what is the motivating factors, the difference that you're you're able to make. Right, and overcome yeah. and be okay with being, you know, facing the challenge. Exactly. Um, it's definitely mental. Yes. Is, yes. It needs to be there. Um, yes, absolutely. Being in the middle of the, gen, you know, genocide, just thinking, not even just your safety, but um, the years of trauma that it might potentially cause you. Absolutely. Absolutely. The mental strength that you absolutely need to have is critical. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So yeah, we're in a pandemic right now uh, <laughs> and you in home, any fun things that you're doing, um, any things you're doing to prepare for your upcoming trip. I know you're taking some language classes, but what's yeah. been you busy? Yeah. So, um, language you know language is one of those things where you you can never just be done learning there's always something to be learned but it's exciting to you know i see from where i started and how far i've come now to knowing like very barely nothing of portuguese and now being able to pick up on things uh being able to speak um but you know the like the kind of portuguese we've learned is really the portuguese that is um more preparing us for the work that we'll be doing as well so now we've shifted gear and said okay let's learn more about like if you have to go to the hospital if you have to go to the groceries like things that are more day-to-day basis so i'm really fortunate to be getting that kind of training as well i think it will make um acclimating into the local community a lot easier um and i've been um exploring music too i'm planning on sort of uh, working on my music while I'm in um, Brazil. So I've been practicing some Portuguese music and that's been one of the wow. ways that I've been um, learning the language as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just, you know, practicing some guitar, some singing and just reconnecting with family and friends and deepening the friendships that uh, I want to deepen. You know, yeah. that's like some of, uh, some of the anxieties that you have also about traveling is like, you might be missing, you know, big events of, you know, birthdays here weddings there but saying like how do I support my friends um better how do I deepen my relationships and so just thinking about that and reading a lot as well um just doing the things that I know I might not have time to do when I'm in when I'm working in Brazil yeah no um to your point about deepening relationships it's it's so critical because you are going to be away and it's um it's important to have that foundation absolutely surround yourself with people that are going to understand um you know your absence but exactly cover you in and in, in any way whether that's in spirit or conversation or anything that that they can and um and will do so that's awesome yeah um can we expect any singles um any, <laughs> any solos you'll be dropping any soon I hope so. I hope so. That's like one of my, that's one of my goals, but let's see if I'll have the courage to share. <laughs> well, if you do, we're definitely going to be dropping it on our site. So. <laughs> Thanks, Lily. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be working on that. I hope they say, you know, finding those outlets. I know in Sao Paulo, um, one of our, um, uh, the Council General of the Embassy was telling Yes, you know, he said, please bring your instruments because this is a place where people take a lot of lessons and people take like cooking lessons, different things. And so they say this is one of the ways that you kind of keep yourself sane when you're living in a different country and um, might have some, you know, challenging times. And so 
I hope to do that when I'm in Brazil. Any any advice that you have for folks who are interested in this industry? Um, words of wisdom? Um, honestly, you know, it is, uh, the work of diplomats is often unseen, but it is so impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anybody who has a heart for public service, um, and for anyone who, um, who just wants to serve and give back to their communities, this is an awesome, amazing profession. Um, I have not been in it too long, but I'm sure that um, there are people who can attest to the dynamic differences that they've made and the contributions that they've made um, in different countries and to furthering our mission. Um, I would say take every opportunity I've talked, you know, shared with you about the, the Charles Rangel Fellowship. Um, and another one is called Pickering Fellowship for people to look into. Um, and for people interested in international development, there's another fellowship called the Payne Fellowship. And all these different fellowships are seeking to really represent the um, diversity uh, of the U.S. in foreign policy. And so if there's people who are interested in that, please go and apply to these fellowships, give them a shot. Um, and, or there's a will, like there's a way, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Howie. Um, this was great. Thank you for being on the show and talking about your journey. Um, can people stay in touch with you? Or, or can we provide some of your contact information for people to reach out who are interested? Yeah, awesome. I would love that. Um, on Facebook, just Howie Telahun. And um, I am I'm occasionally on Instagram as well, in and out. <laughs> but... <laughs> But they can find me on, on Instagram as well. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I will definitely share your contact. Um, this has been great. It's been so informative for me. And I was doing some research to prior our conversation. I was really um, not shocked, but, you know, it was, it was interesting for me to understand, to your point, the day-to-day of what you guys do. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of blown away that I was interviewed by so who, someone who would have been you to come to this to this country um <laughs> and you know it was informative it changed my life um so I think it's absolutely it's a it's a job that should not be taken lightly um and I we thank you obviously for serving the country and for being a great diplomat um and for being an Ethiopian diplomat I think that's fantastic um, <laughs> yeah thank you again Howie thank you so much for having me Lily and Keep at it. This is so great. I'm, I'm really quite inspired by the platform that you've created here. It's really awesome. So thank you so much for having me. Oh.